Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this uh, episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast, and uh, we have uh, Julia Taylor Kennedy, who is Executive Vice President of the Center for Talent Innovation, which is based out of New York and has been leading a lot of excellent research in that area, including one we're talking about today, which is called Being Black in Corporate America, which is something that isn't brand new based on um, George Floyd times, but you've been doing, this has come out a few years back, right, Julia? A few months, actually. It came out December uh, 2019. Ah. Well, how, how yeah. timely. And also with us is Janice Murray, who is a, a, a consultant with WMFDP and also has been a chief diversity officer, including at Exelon. Welcome, Janice. And you have a previous relationship with CTI as well, right? Yes, I do. Thanks, Michael. Um, I do. Um, uh, we had the benefit of CTI coming into Exelon and doing some work with different teams and different parts of the organization around sponsorship. Um, and so I'm really excited to be a part of this because of the great work that CTI continues to do in this area. So uh, thank you for including me on this. Thank you. Well, let's jump into this study. Uh, Julia, can you share a little bit of background? Uh, this, uh, what, what, what was the impetus to actually take on this study? And, um, you know, what, what, what are some of the key findings? And we'll just kind of go back and forth in an informal conversation. Sounds great, Michael. And yes, thank you so much for having me on. I, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about. And I've been hearing for years of the amazing work that WMFDP has been doing. Uh, and so it's a great opportunity to collaborate with you on some researches we're doing on belonging and also to talk about this study that really supports um, the great work you're driving to build connection um, across lines of difference. So the reason we conducted the study was we observed what a lot of people are now really attuned to um, as we're talking more about uh, race inequities in the workplace, especially after the killing of George Floyd. But at Center for Talent Innovation, since our bread and butter is diversity, equity, and inclusion, we already saw this happening, which is when we looked at representation of black professionals looking up the corporate ladder, we saw this immense drop off from entry level black professionals, which is at about 9%, um, down to 0.4% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And that number is actually moving a bit backwards from where we were in the 1990s. So um, this was of great concern, right, of our stakeholders, chief diversity officers at different companies, and to ourselves uh, who are working to move the needle and make progress when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion at companies. 
So we thought there is something going on that is particular to the Black experience in corporate America, and we wanted to understand what was underneath those numbers. Something that we saw in the corporate space was increasingly, as diversity and inclusion leaders were taking care of more and more people within the organization, which is great, right? Diversity and inclusion now uh, looks at inclusion of veterans, people with disabilities, um, people of all ethnicities and races. It's wonderful that we're watching out for people with all these other outsider, as you might put it, characteristics. But in doing so, there's this tendency to lump a group of employees under the umbrella of people of color. So to look at your Asian, Latinx, and Black employees with one number, if you're analyzing an engagement survey or asking your employees, you know, how they're feeling day to day at the organization, rather than look at the particular experience of Black professionals. And as I said earlier, we see different outcomes for Black professionals as they seek to rise within organizations. So we said in this study, we're just going to look at Black professionals. And in some cases, um, we compared the experience of Black professionals to Latinx or Asian uh, professionals, but mostly we were looking at Black and white professionals and how their experiences varied. Uh, we did that by fielding a nationally representative survey and then conducting a, an extensive lit review, interviews, and focus groups to put our findings into Thanks for that background. And uh, Janice, you were also particularly appreciative of the having a direct focus on Black corporate world, I believe, as opposed to putting everybody together. So thank you for that, Julia. Yeah, I, I, I was. And um, I think that the importance of it is, you know, cannot be underestimated. Um, you know, I was one of those diversity professionals that track the metrics that Julia was referring to. And we put people of color, um, you know, together in one and in starting to kind of tease apart what the experience was as black professionals were growing or not uh, in the organization, it, 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 you could really get to a level of specificity around the experience just being different. Um, I, I, I think the, I think it's important to acknowledge that and it's important to recognize that it can be really, really hard to talk about race and that it can feel like, yeah, I'm still doing the DNI work, but a little easier to kind of put everybody together. So as a black professional, I appreciate the fact that there is special attention being paid because there's a recognition that something, you know, the system is not built necessarily in a way that uh, Black corporate professionals can feel the same level of success as their white counterparts. Um, and that is, you know, anybody who's listening to this, I would encourage you to take a look at this report because it really pulls it out in, in a lot of very data-driven ways that resonated with me as I was reading it. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so having that level of specificity is really required because the experience is very, very different. 
something else that enabled us to do was then look at how complex the Black experience is, right? So we were able to then drill even further down into the data and say, well, what's the experience of Black women? What's the experience of Black millennials? What's the experience of Black LGBTQ professionals? How does the experience differ as you get into the senior leader ranks? And so we looked at that um, throughout the study and found there were meaningful differences given these different layers or intersecting identities um, that professionals go through life with. And, you know, when I look at the, um, you know, the, the summary report, the summary findings, there's a lot in here that's just really, really striking. You know, the, the, the first part about black professionals are more likely than white professionals to be ambitious. Um, that there's a higher 65% compared to 53% resonate who, and that's striking, um, because I, I don't know that a lot of people realize that, that that's the case or the, the, they don't, that, that story isn't told or there, you know, people make other stereotypes or assumptions. What did you, what's, what's behind that? That's striking. And that's right front and center. The first thing in the report. Yeah, we thought it was important to lead with that to establish this baseline and say the differentiated outcomes are not about difference in aspiration. In fact, if you look at the difference in aspiration, there's higher aspiration, there's higher drive among Black professionals to succeed within corporate America. We had uncovered this among Black women in the past. We had a report called Black Women Ready to Lead. Uh, and there, this is one of the areas where, you know, as a white woman who's a feminist, it's been a journey for me over the years to learn about the difference um, between white feminism and black feminism and how crucial it is to be aware of that, having that dual identity of a black woman and how that shapes your outlook and experience, which also goes un, unacknowledged and unrecognized um, under-recognized uh, in the DNI space, uh, which we talk about in the report as well. But so we had done this report called Black Women Ready to Lead that talked about for white women, sometimes white women question their ambition, right? Sometimes there's a confidence issue that comes into play that's been really studied. For black women, what we find is overwhelmingly ambition is there, drive and confidence are there. It's about invisibility from others, others not seeing the, the drive, confidence, and ambition that Black women hold. And so we wanted to look and see, is this true for Black men as well? And indeed, we did find that the ambition is high among mm. Black men as well. Um, and so there's this sort of universal um, drive to succeed that white professionals are not necessarily aware of. And as you say, Michael, there's some, uh, some um, stereotypes about that. So we wanted to open with that and then say, okay, so this is a really ambitious cohort. However, uh, what we find is, and, and think, of the, think of the disappointment then when, you know, as 65% of our Black respondents said, they face more obstacles in pursuing their careers. And how even further disappointing and alienating that is when you're Black when you're, how further disappointing and alienating that is when your white colleagues are unaware of it. So at the time we fielded our survey, which was about a year ago, we found that only 16% of white professionals 
agreed with the statement, it's harder for black professionals to advance. 65% of black professionals agreed with that statement, only 16% of white professionals. So not only as a black professional, might you be disappointed uh, that you're not able to meet your ambition or have a harder time meeting your ambition, you're also disappointed by the fact that your white professionals aren't aware of that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that 16%, I'm hopeful that that 16% has gone up. So if we were to field that survey again today, post George, George Floyd with all the conversations we're having, um, that more people would be aware. And we see this in other polls, right? More white Americans are aware of systemic racism and even more comfortable saying the words systemic racism than they were a year ago. But I think we're still grappling as a country about what to do about it. And so some of our findings in the study are helpful there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, the, the, the thing that struck me about that first, you know, this being kind of the first thing that you see is that it completely goes against the narrative around Black people. And, you know, many people probably don't want to even admit that the narrative is there of being not as smart or being a little slow, you know, being lazy. Um, black women being angry um, or a little bit too aggressive um, as opposed to, you know, their white counterparts who may be viewed as being passionate. Um, and so there's this constant kind of negotiation that I, I had to do in my head um, in, different, in different situations. Do I say that? Do I not say that? Do I... Do I speak louder because this person has cut me off three times or do I, you know, and how is that going to show up for me as a black woman um, in diversity and inclusion? So it's kind of all of that. Um, and so I really appreciate the fact that this is right up front. And I, I share the hope that more of white America is seeing this since, since the whole George Floyd incident. But there's, there's also kind of that inward look of how are we valuing whiteness over everything else? And that includes other people of color. I think there is a mm -hmm. different kind of impact on black people. But the value of whiteness, that is the filter, that is the norm that we all have to kind of twist ourselves into a pretzel to try and meet. And, you know, the, and I hope that we'll get to this. The other thing in your report is showing that the millennial, black millennials are not, they're not feeling that. They're not, that's not the way they want to show up. Uh, the ones that you spoke, that you um, spoke to. So it's really, it, it's, it's, it's kind of the narrative and even acknowledging that the narrative is there because mm -hmm. these, the assumptions those assumptions will drive how I'm perceived as soon as I walk in the room before I've even said anything. Absolutely. And if I, as a white guy, am unconscious of, of any narrative that I've absorbed or been socialized to, I might, I might see you there and say, well, see, we don't have any issues. We don't have any problems. Or if you are um, assertive about your career, and I expect you not to be because of some narrative. I might say, well, she's pretty uppity or she's a pushy. It's like it, it yep. gives me a, 
you know, uh, a, a pretty messy, you know, disconnect from what your reality is. And then this, what you pointed out, Julia, that 65% of blacks feel they have to work harder to advance. And if I'm one of the, you know, what, 85% of white men or white folks that don't even see that, it's like a disconnect for me because um, you're, you and I are living in a different universe where I think I might even make up a story that the playing field is level or that you have an mm -hmm. advantage now being black um, and that, you know, it's the diversity efforts are giving you more of an advantage and I'm a disadvantage when in reality, your experience is you're working plenty hard, plenty harder to get where you are. You're having to manage all kinds of things that I don't have to think about and navigate. And then, you know, and then I don't even know how to talk about that with you or bring it up because I just focus on sameness because it's a safe place for me to avoid all conversations about race. Mm -hmm. And then you don't feel mm -hmm. seen for that part of your experience. And it's a, it's a setup for tragedy and missed partnership. And I'm glad that what's happening in the world right now is putting more pressure on people to say, let's actually lean into these conversations about race. Mm -hmm. And this report is an ama amazing background for, uh, for white folks, particularly, I think, to, to become more sensitized to what our blind spots might be when we wade into these conversations. And I, and I want to just, uh, one thing in what she just said, Michael, and something that Julia said about the systemic piece to this, um, you know, I think that the challenge with kind of calling out systemic racism, whether it's in broader society or within an organization, is it could say to somebody white, you had help that the black person didn't have. And the white person saying, I'm a, like, I'm a good person. I don't do X, Y, Z without recognizing there's a system in place and and it, it, it's not a matter of whether or not you built the system. Mm -hmm. It's the recognition yeah. that the system is in place and it needs to be acknowledged, looked at, and really determined yeah. what impact that has on Black employees. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's, it, it's a tough thing to look at because then there's some acknowledgement that white people might have to make around, oh, I got this leg up, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. whether I designed it or not. Um, right. And so that, that's a tough, that can be a tough thing to look at. But until, until corporations are willing to do that, then mm -hmm. these results, I don't know how much these results are going to, are going to change. Uh, in, in people's mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. Yeah. How much of the corporate culture is really a white male culture? Um, mm -hmm. How much of that is dominant U.S. culture in our work, what we call that, and have people examining the impact of that on everybody and how um, it creates a world where I don't even have to think about race. I don't have to think about it much about race or gender in my culture because the water I swim in in corporate America is the water that I grew up in, in many ways. And I just get to be more of myself and you're having to constantly think about what, what part of me fits in here, what doesn't fit in, how does it show up? How does it play out? And that creates a dynamic where I am, I get to be unconscious about, about some of these dynamics. And it doesn't mean I'm bad. It doesn't mean I've created that intentionally, but 
um, it's like, you're right. It's like, how do I have, I have to look at my whiteness or for men, white maleness and understand how is that, like you said, um, an invisible lens of, you know, that determines who's qualified, who's promotable. Um, I find a lot of white men I work with wake up and say, I've been mentoring everybody else to be and act like white men. And I didn't even think about that uh, until I started, I, because I never have to leave my culture. I don't even know if it's a culture. I just think I'm training everybody to be a good human as opposed to, you know, be more like us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a real dismantling that has to take place. And I think part of what, what you were getting at Janice's some of the dismantling is this myth of the meritocracy that's so ingrained in our U.S. American, um, the, the American dream, right? That that if we work hard, we will be rewarded in measure that equals our efforts. And so this this is problematic if you know you see if if you see you're putting in a ton of work and you're not being rewarded at the same rate of, as your peers. But if you're in that white male culture or even just white culture and you see results from your efforts being put in, then it's easy to tell yourself, I, that's because of my work. That's because of my hard work. I deserve what I've gotten um, and not right. seeing that there is that leg up, right? So I think there's the dismantling of that myth of the meritocracy in our system um, and to say everything you re- received was a direct consequence of the amount of work that you put in, not realizing there's that extra layer of effort, extra layer of job competency that Black professionals have to develop just to be accepted, to get their ideas across, to respond in a way that makes those around them comfortable. And then the second piece that I think um, you were raising earlier, Michael, that we tried to get at in the research was how do we spell out very clearly for our white readers what are the behaviors that may be unconscious that come across as microaggressions to Black professionals? And by microaggressions, I mean these very subtle reminders that you're an outsider. Um, And so what we did in our survey was we identified, we had a really long list, and we identified the 14 that black professionals experience at much at significantly higher rates than anyone of any background. So significantly higher than even those who are Latinx in the workplace um, to understand what are the real racialized microaggressions that take place. So, you know, even white women experience some microaggressions around people ignoring their ideas um, in a meeting for black professionals. We identified those 14 that are, that really stand out for them. Um, And some of them are things that white leaders may, you know, can look at the list and say, oh, I've done that unintentionally, right? And so if in, in, when I'm presenting this data to uh, top leadership groups, as I am right now with a lot of companies, I see a lot of aha moments saying, oh yeah, I, I was raised to try and look past race. So I've certainly said to people in an effort to bond with them, I don't see color, not realizing that that's actually extraordinarily off-putting to someone who is of a different background to say, you don't see the fact that my skin is a different color from yours, but you're such an accomplished, smart individual, right? What you're actually doing with that statement is denying that I have 
a different lived experience from yours. And that means my perspective is different from yours in some really great ways, actually. So we have that list um, in the report, and that's been really helpful as we try to engage and draw people out as they're trying to have more conversations across lines of difference and reflect on their own individual role in the system. How have they absorbed some of these behaviors and how can they sort of interrupt them both in their own behavior, but also when they see others engage in it? And I think too, the, the dynamic traditionally has been that the outsiders, um, in this case, the black men and women must be the educators, must be the ones that raise, point out these issues, which is exhausting, get seen as having a chip on your shoulder. And we as white men and women aren't the ones that are doing the heavy lifting to actually look in the mirror and see what are these micro invalidations or insults or aggressions that we're actually speaking that we could be policing each other on to remove the burden of educating from others. Absolutely. Yeah, that and that along with the notion of having to work twice as hard <clears throat> when you mm -hmm. couple that together, I mean, it's like getting up in the morning and saying, okay, let me, you know, get myself, let me get my armor on. Um, so the whole kind of process of preparing to even show up, whether it's virtually or in person, takes on a different level of, you know, there's, everybody's got to prepare, right? But this takes on a different level of, of just, again, the negotiation and the thinking about it and just really getting tired, you know, getting mentally, I forget, one, one of you, I think, Michael, you said something about exhaustion it really is it's very very taxing um and there are also instances where um the the black employee may express you know a concern about one of these microaggressions or invalidations and they're not believed or you know gee it's not a big deal or can't you just take a joke or um right. and it's like why would i lie about this you know so so you, so you decide, yeah. you know, do, is this, do I want to take this on right now? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. So that's, that kind of happens um, a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, as you're talking about it around um, black men and women corporations, being also black uh, woman leader in corporate America yourself, Janice, as well as leading corporate efforts at diversity as a black woman, I can only imagine this all resonates at a deep level for you personally. Oh, definitely, definitely. And and I wanna say, you know, from the outset that I worked with leaders who really, really cared a lot about diversity and equity and inclusion, um, you know, put in a lot of effort, um, never said, you know, didn't, you know, they welcomed me to their teams, you know, all of those, those types of things. And I, you know, I'm trying to build trust, right? I'm trying to build connection um, because that that's necessary. That was necessary for me to do my job. And to do that, what am I leaving on the table? You know, what mm. am I maybe not saying that I would want to say that would be beneficial for us to talk about, frankly? Um, and so, you know, that, and it wasn't like they asked me to do it. 
but it was just always in the back of my mind of how do I kind of play this? How do I address this question? How do I ask this question? Um, with people who were doing some really great work in diversity and inclusion. Um, so, yeah, so there was a little extra, you know, that I often had mm. to think about in those encounters. Is that a little bit like how much of your real truth can you actually speak and call out what you see? Uh, how much how much do you have to perceive white folks? How much are they... Are they they're already half full of their bucket? Is it going to push them over the edge to carry more? And um, having to gauge that, and um, in some ways, take care of us uh, for fear that the consequences are going to come back to you. You know, if we get yeah, it, out of, uh, out of shape or something. Hmm. Yeah, it's how much. It's when. You know, if something is said in a group, do I say something then that could benefit the group, or do I say something one on one? Um, how, when, where, you know, all of that. And so, um, and, and again, I think everybody has that with their leader, with leaders. Um, but the addition of me walking in as a black woman, you know, doing this work, engaging with white men in a space where they may not feel like totally comfortable or feel like they've mm-hmm. ever been asked to play a role. Um, because usually they're not, um, I, you know, it's like, is it the, is it the battle you want to win or the war? (laughs) And so there were times when I might've left some things on the table because I had a bigger goal. Um, Mm -hmm. do I, you know, and, and it was intentional on my part often, oftentimes. And I, I can imagine at times there were some behaviors amongst white leaders, white men and women who where actually you breathe a sigh of relief and you felt like, yeah, they're starting to do that with each other. I don't have to be the one to do all the heavy lifting. And that probably made a huge uh, difference. It does. It does. That kind of intervention, um, it, it goes beyond being an ally. It, it really gets to, you know what, I'm going to kind of get in front of this. And not because Janice needs my help. I don't need to save Janice. It's because this person needs to know I don't agree with them. Um, and, and, and they need to hear it from somebody that has the same color skin that, that they have. Um, it, it goes, that, that intervention really means a lot. And it also meant to me that that person saw me, the person that intervened saw me. They saw me enough to say, I don't know how this is landing with Janice. I can imagine how I might be landing with her and I'm going to step in. So that's really important. Yeah. Using that voice. So I, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Janice, that, um, Julia, you probably have some comments on, which is black millennials. Um, you said that there's a shift there. Um, and so there's some information in the report. Do you want to talk about that, Julia? And then I'd like to hear Janice's thoughts on that, too. Sure, absolutely. This was actually one area of the report. For a lot of this study, we came in with some pretty strong hypotheses around the ambition point that we made earlier, right? In some ways we were pulling together themes that have been studied in different ways qualitatively and in other studies, maybe just not in precisely the same depth that we were looking. But the generational point hasn't been studied that extensively. Um, what is What has changed for black millennials today? Um, and we found some really interesting data that as you summed it up, Janice, 
says black millennials are not, um, not ready to assimilate. If I can just put it really, really, really clearly, (laughs) not ready to assimilate or try to fit into uh, white culture in the same way that um, older black professionals felt the need to do. And so what we picked up on in our survey results and in our interviews with black millennials was this, um, this almost trauma of entering a workplace with education, more education around systemic racism, sometimes coming from historically black colleges and universities. So coming from a context where they were celebrated for their intellect and for their blackness, and then coming into a workplace where suddenly they were facing the expectations of assimilation, the microaggressions to remind them that they were outsiders and that being super difficult. So we saw deeper uh, energy being expended among millennials to try and find their way to an authentic professional self than we saw among other generations. We saw higher rates of uh, black millennials saying, I've been tokenized or asked to speak on behalf of my entire race um, when, you know, to opine on a certain question in a meeting. Um, And we also saw this deeper desire to leave. So uh, far more millennials are looking to start their own business, to create a space where they can be themselves, where they can drive their ideas forward and feel less othered um, if they're starting their own company or working for a smaller company. Um, And so that's really what we picked up among black millennials. And it's of great concern, of course, for employers because that's their future, right? Those are their future leaders. If they're looking to drive diversity and inclusion and change those representation numbers, this is a huge risk and a huge loss that Black millennials in greater numbers are looking to leave and feeling really alienated. And I, I have to tell you, that really resonated with me because I'm living it. Mm. Um, I have the benefit of having my mother still alive. Um, her experience, completely different than my experience. And I've got two daughters who are both millennials. Um, and even even with the two of them, there's a difference in how they view things. There's a five-year difference in age. And when I listen to my youngest daughter and my older daughter, there's even differences there. But where they are very, very much alike is they are not going to apologize for or accommodate how others may feel about their blackness. They're going to wear their natural hair. You know, they are going to um, be who they are in that, in that space. And it's, a, it's been a journey and, they, and it's still a struggle. I mean, the conversations that I have with them, in most cases about work, it's not about I didn't get a good performance review or I didn't get a, it's really navigating whiteness, you know, as, and, and not wanting to acquiesce who they are. Meanwhile, my mother is listening to this and thinking, oh my God, they're going to be fired, you know, tomorrow. So, so she's got this whole, you got to be careful and you can't push too much. So, you know, and I'm, 
you know, I'm kind of in between that because I am one of those baby boomers that said, you know, this is how it is. And I just have to figure it out. Um, and, and so it really, you know, for companies that are looking to retain millennials, um, you know, it's generally one bucket of millennials. Well, there are differences, Mm -hmm. you know, between how white millennials may experience the workplace and millennials of color, and then black millennials may. And so really, that, that one size fits all on how to keep millennials of, you know, let them work from Starbucks is, you know, it's probably not enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and how do you begin kind of pulling that apart? Well, and I think you're making, you're making a really good point about managing millennials as a whole and thinking about, you know, millennials of different backgrounds. But something that we observed in conducting the research that also was really interesting that you highlighted in your story about your family was when we started talking about assimilation into the workplace and and progression um, in our focus groups, that was the moment when I would kind of sit back as a facilitator and watch as members of different generations who were all black professionals would engage in a real debate. It was, you know, there is, and we see this, we think of the generational differences, as you point out, a lot of what's out there is really predominated by white narratives. But it was very interesting to see as a researcher, to see the tension between more senior Black professionals who say, I have lessons to teach you. This worked for me, right? And I'm one of the few that figured out how to navigate. And I want to impart my wisdom and you're not hearing me. And younger black professionals who say, I'm not ready to make that sacrifice. You know, I honor and respect that you did. The world needs to change. I'm not ready to, to fully change. Um, so, so just to echo that, that what you voiced is what we witness time and time again and is something else for companies to keep in mind as they're setting up mentorship programs right for rising black professionals that this is something to coach black leaders on and white leaders who are the mentors to say no no there's a different outlook here that we want to support and learn from yeah i'm, I'm wondering too is the you mentioned janice there's a difference between your daughters and age and i'm wondering about the younger millennials and the gen z which may be uh, entering the workforce up to 25 years old now or so, wondering if it's even more um, that, that, you know, not wanting to collude or conform, as well as given the times we're in, the post-George Floyd times yeah. where, you know, it's changing under our feet right now. Yeah. What do you all think about that, even the younger end of the younger generations? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, for my two daughters, um, it's funny, they're only five years apart, but it's almost like they're in two different parts of the millennial, um, you know, generation. And there are things that are just a little bit more native to my youngest daughter than they are my older daughter. Um, and so, and some of that I think is just personality. It's just a different, you know, a different set of expectations. But, you know, I think as we go further and further along um, with future generations, that um, I think we're just going to see more of this and more of a willingness to say, okay, then I'm just going to try something else. If, if, this, if this doesn't work for me, I'm just going to try something else. Um, and there will be parents like me 
who will support that. You know, I'm supportive of them being who they are in whatever space they they travel in because I want them to be that way. Um, and recognizing that carries a little bit of a risk. Um, and so I, you know, I think there are, will be support systems around that with family and friends saying, yeah, let's, you know, whereas my mother would have been like, keep the job, you know, don't, don't give up the job. You need the job. Um, and that was her orientation and I get it, but I just think, I think more and more companies are going to have to figure this out if they want to retain that talent. I also think the resources and education that's out there and the fluency, something that I observe in our own small team, which is very diverse. And, you know, I'm on the very tippy oldest uh, section of the millennial generation um, and that I observe from my younger uh, colleagues who are millennials of color um, at, at work. There's this fluency that even I don't have and I'm in the space with some of the right. more progressive narratives out there. Um, that they are getting from uh, being out in the streets, from absorbing so much that's out on social media that they expect the world to be able to engage on, right? Because if we are going to yes. drive this change, the expectation is that leaders um, will lead. And in order to do that, they need to be educated on these topics and be able to speak about them fluently. So that's something else that I'm seeing Yes, from, from younger Black uh, colleagues, but from honestly from younger colleagues of many backgrounds at this point who are in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, expecting to have a higher level discourse um, in the workplace and something that's more constructive uh, towards driving change. Yeah. Well, I'm noticing we have maybe just five more minutes or so. I'm wondering if there's anything else uh, Julia, you wanted to mention about the report. I know people can probably Google being black in corporate America or go to the Center for Talent Innovation, talentinnovation.org and find the report, the overview and the detailed study. Is there anything else you want to speak to about what's in there? There's other stuff I know we haven't even touched on. Well, you know, I could go on for hours. <laughs> um, but there is one thing I would love to mention uh, just as we wrap here which is if you're listening, if you're thinking about driving change as an individual or at your organization, um, check out the full study and see what might interest you or be relevant to your own experience. And you can find it on our website at talentinnovation.org. But one thing that we lay out is a framework uh, to drive action. Uh, and we put a lot of thought into this framework and now we find we're using it over and over again as companies are taking um, change on race really seriously. So it, it can be applied to individuals or to organizations, and it has three steps. Audit, which is, you know, kind of check where you are in your own journey. If you're an individual, look around who you're advocating for, who you're mentoring, who you're supporting, who you're intervening on behalf of, um, how diverse is your team, um, is your friend base, you can also do this as an organization, right? Look at the representation numbers. Look at how Black employees are feeling at your company. That's sort of the state of play, the audit stage. And then there's an awakening that needs to happen. And some of that can come out of the numbers that you see, but it also can come out of the self-education we're all doing, you know, reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, 
attending uh, one of Michael Welp's amazing retreats uh, with Michael and Janice, right? Thinking about how to really become aware of the history of systemic racism in this country and the role, um, if you're white, that you play in that history or if you're not black. Um, so there's that awakening piece. And as an organization, right, HR and DNI can support that awakening by having discussion groups about um, podcasts or videos that explore systemic racism, sharing resources, et cetera. And then the third phase, once you have that awareness of where you're at and where your organization is at, as well as what are, why you are where you are, then you can start to really act. And we suggest that you act in collaboration with, but not depending on um, black colleagues and black professionals um, at a company, right? So not putting the onus, as you mentioned, Michael, on the black professionals at a company to drive this change or to come up with the change, but consulting others in how they wanna be mm -hmm. advocated for, how they wanna be supported, what change they're looking for from the organization and act accordingly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, I'm gonna say a word or two and then I'll see if Janice, you wanna say anything too in closing, but I think of the movie clip that was shown of Amy Cooper and um, you know, that it's not um, the biggest active racists in the society that we're thinking about around these corporate environments, but it's the subtle. Sometimes people would describe themselves as liberal, uh, pro-diversity, and, you know, how do us as white folks unintentionally but um, unconsciously, for the most part, perpetuate uh, white supremacy? Um, and if we're not actively being anti-racist, we're probably supporting racism at a passive level. How do we step into that more urgently um, and today? And that's part of the journey for us. Um, and to lean into each other as white folks to do that work with each other, challenging each other. Uh, what would you add, Janice, in our last few minutes? Um, well, first of all, I would echo what both of you have said and, you know, add the fact that um, talking about race, uh, diving into um, this, it's not the most natural place for a lot of white people to go. And so recognizing that it's a muscle that needs to be developed just like everything else and recognizing that there's going to be moments of extreme discomfort, um, but also recognizing that your black and brown colleagues probably experience that every time they walk into a meeting where they might be the only one. And so letting that serve as a way for you to learn and please don't run away from it. You know, don't, don't, you know, that, that happens. It's like, I don't like this. Let me back off. Um, recognizing that you're going to hear some things maybe you've never had to think about before. Um, and, and have it serve in, as a learning for you to develop a skill, not something that you should just know, you know, through osmosis. Recognize it as a skill that needs to be learned um, that can serve, serve you in a lot of ways. Awesome. And, and be willing to make the mistakes and keep going. Pick it up and yep. uh, learn from it and keep learn when I unintentionally impact somebody that it's an opportunity to turn it into deeper partnership. 
If I don't get defensive, if I don't defend in 10, I just understand more. Don, right. Julia, anything else you want to say in closing? Thank you for having this conversation with me. I Every yeah. time that I engage with white men as full diversity partners, I learn something. So I really appreciate you having me on and, and uh, engaging in the study with me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Julia. Julia, thank you for doing the study uh, and having it come out so timely. It's such a really great resource um, for people in today's world. Um, being Black in corporate America is a, is a perfectly timed um, tool for these dialogues and these lear this learning process for everybody. So thanks, Julia, and thanks, Janice, for uh, both of you Thank the you. time in the last hour. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast. <laughs>